Welcome to the Boardrooms Best, the podcast for CEOs, board directors, investors, leaders, and those who want to rise and serve in the boardrooms of public, private, family-owned, charitable foundations, and exciting high-flying entrepreneurial companies. I'm Nancy May, the CEO of the Boardbench Companies, and I'm your host here today at the Boardrooms Best. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Boardrooms Best. My name is Nancy May. I'm your host here on this show. As you should all know by now if you're a regular listener, so thank you in advance for that. Today is part two of our show on directors and officers liability with my good friend Perry Granoff, who is co-founder and managing director of Granoff International. He is a sought-after expert in this particular area of his expertise and a published author of books and articles and you name it. Perry is the guy to go to if you are any concern on DNO. And on that front, we're actually announcing, we did in the last show, that we're doing a series of programs together that you can participate in called, well, we actually don't have a name for it yet, but we're focused on how to educate you and and do some one-on-one or small group discussions on how to make sure that your DNO is actually protecting your your assets. <laughs> we'll be polite about that. How's that, right? Critical. Critical. <laughs> critical, critical. So if you'd like some information on that, I'll be posting a link to that on our website, which is www.boardbench, B-O-A-R-D, bench.com. Not Broadbench, as I've had with some folks, which is really pretty funny, but it is boardbench.com. So you can get that information right off our front page. And please take a look. So we are going to start part deux. Wow. (laughs) Internationally, part deux. (laughs) Very appropriate. Thank you, Nancy, for having me again on this show. Well, Perry, there's so much to cover on this whole area of D&O, Director's Office and Liability, and what's going on in the corporate world. Our first show, for those of you who may have missed it, was really talking to you as an individual director or prospective director on what you need to really consider when it comes to protecting yourself and your corporation in the whole DNO and liability space. These were triggers, critical information, broken down to sort of a simple format so even the average person can figure it out. But do take a look or listen to it. Before we start actually in this show, one of the things that we had talked about, Perry, at the end in between our break was the importance of DNO really for the not-for-profit director, which a lot of people don't even consider. And I was on a, a significant not-for-profit a number of years ago for about nine years, and we dealt with children. And DNO was definitely, liability insurance was definitely something I was concerned about because God knows anything could happen with a child. And you really, we really wanted to make sure that we were serving the organization at our highest level, personally and professionally, but that we didn't have to worry about something that happened out in the field that, that could hurt us from, from doing that good. Absolutely. It's interesting. Typically, not-for-profit DNO insurance is, is much cheaper, obviously, than um, for-profit insurance and in terms of the premiums you pay. And in terms of the actual um, exposure for liability, typically, it's typically, talking outside you know, Catholic church scandals and the like, typically, it's much less than the sort of exposure you would face in a for-profit DNO 
uh, issue. But I guess it they, depends upon the not-for-profit and the sensitivity of their mission, too, right? Well, it does. But I, I think the, the, what I was trying to get at, though, and, and you're absolutely right, I don't want to minimize the, the exposure because it can be significant but but obviously the local you know the local church local synagogue it's not necessarily a significant uh, liability exposure however the problem sometimes with um, the exposures is that the issues that the directors and officers um, may be faced with are personal often and the personal aspect creates a need maybe for the plaintiff, the claimant, to get his or her point across. So explain that a little bit more when you mean it becomes personal. Is it the mission or the affliction or the accident or whatever might have happened? The feeling of being offended one way or the other. If it's okay. a wrongful termination, that wrongful termination is not just business. It's a personal termination, being a member of the not-for-profit organization, being a member okay. of the community. If it's an issue of a, a homeowner's association, right. the idea of your own condo being damaged and not being properly repaired creates a personal and emotional element. Okay. To it. And typically, though, unlike a business arrangement, those cases are, are not a, as soluble mm. as you know, a, a business situation. And so often the expenses can be much more than you would normally anticipate because... Putting a price on an emotion is not as easy to do as putting a price on an asset. Well put. And so you will have plaintiffs or claimants who will say, this isn't a matter of money. This is a personal issue for me and a personal vendetta. And I want to I want to see justice mm. and I'll spend whatever it takes to get the justice that I need to be met. Could go on for years and years. And you do have situations like that. So that's one of the distinct factors of, of not-for-profit DNO insurance that, that you don't necessarily encounter in for-profit insurance. Well, thank you, Barry. I just wanted to bring that out because I know that there are a number of people out in our listening audience, as well as friends and family members that we all know who want to serve our communities in various ways and do good. Being on a not-for-profit board is one way to do that. But to go back to make this bridge back to the corporate world, one of the things that is sort of front and center today and has been for probably the last 12 months is the whole GDPR issue and what's going on in that environment having corporations and even sort of the smaller and mid-sized businesses come up to compliance with the European statutes, which is where this all started, correct? That's correct. Right. That's absolutely correct. It seems that Europeans, and it's interesting because on your last show, you talked about the issue of privacy and how privacy- Our last show. (laughs) Our last show. You talked about the issue of privacy and uh, and how privacy um, doesn't really exist as much in today's world as it used to. But in Europe, Europeans, as I've been told, really value their privacy. And this GDPR, I mean, although... Welcome to the new world, Europe. Hello. (laughs) And this GDPR, I mean, is is a reflection of that. It's expanded. And you have a a similar statute like GDPR in California now. Right. But... California seem to sort of be the ones that have been the forerunners for everything. Exactly. Yeah, a lot out there. Exactly. So you, you can expect that it's going to be spreading eventually. But GDPR, which is, it's interesting because it's the general, it stands for the General Data Protection Regulation. And what's outstanding about that title is the fact that it's a regulation by the European Union and not just a directive or an advisory opinion. Um, as of I believe it was um, May 25th, 2018. Right. The European Union was directed by this regulation to set up 
privacy statutes that modeled the, the GDPR in every European jurisdiction that's a member of the EU. And this regulation, I, I have to confess, I haven't read the whole thing because it's voluminous. It's huge. Yeah. But there are some really, really critical aspects of it that, that not only affect Europeans, but affects others. So it applies to... Um, well, if you're doing business in any way, shape, or form overseas or in Europe, you have to comply. Right. And this is like the internet companies, right? right? Anybody, if you are selling or distribute anything online, you must have some sort of GDPR statement. Right. The term is as long as it processes personal data of a European resident, you are subjected to the GDPR. So you have to take some sort of cash transaction from a European resident, just one, well, in order to have to comply. Well, I don't even know if it's cash. You have to process personal data. So, so even in, in some sort you're of- you're collecting emails, right? right some, and I've gotten a, a number of them. So I subscribe to a number of news services. In right. Europe, and up before May 25th, I received right. announcements saying, do you comply? You know, we have to give you notice that we we're going to share your data with others. Do you-, you know, And, and of course, we all read the, you know, the, oh, of course, the volumes of information every, every right down- On those disclaimers. <laughs> <laughs> So Click, um, <laughs> next. I, I want the news. I'll, you know, whatever. Well, what's really interesting about this is I gave a presentation back in um, early May. So just a, a few weeks before the enactment of the GDPR at a seminar here in the States. And it, it was a seminar that was focused on directors and officers liability. Related to GDPR? No, directors and officers liability. And I, I was giving a presentation on, on international exposures. Okay. And so I started talking about GDPR. And as I was talking about it, one of the sponsors of this program said, GDPR, what's this all about? I've never heard of this. Now, this is a lawyer, a highly sophisticated and successful lawyer who is consulting and he wasn't familiar with Interesting. it. Interesting. And indeed- there, And it had been all over the news for what, like the last two years. Well, it has really, been over the news, know? but you know, there have been studies that had been conducted as late as, as um, or even beyond, as late May, but even beyond. Late May of 2018, 2018, 2018. when it actually went into act. Which, which indicated that 60% of those who were polled had taken no actions at all with respect to GDP. Uh, this is before or this is after, you're saying, after well, it was enacted? Either- up until it was right. about to be enacted or just after it was enacted, within that period. Wow. And it, so it's a huge percentage. And the problem is that this, the penalties for violation of the GDPR are severe. The penalties can be as much as 20 million euros or 4% of the um, annual revenues of the company. Ooh. It's huge. Of course, if you have no revenues, then it's no big deal. But... <laughs> Well, bankrupt companies. Well, right, right. But it's um. How long did Amazon? Have? <laughs> well, they had revenues, but they didn't have profits, right? You know, there's a difference between revenues and well, profits. That's right, and and the according to regulation, it's revenues. it's four percent of revenues. Four percent of revenues. Oof, wow. Yeah, so it's really severe, and some of the requirements are are severe. For example, there's one provision which um requires notification um to uh, subscribers of a company. When there's within 72 hours of the discovery of some sort of data breach. So there's a breach at ABC Company. 
right? Right. I'm, I'm not mentioning ABC company as, as the news media company, but just company one, two, three. Right. And I'm a subscriber. And if I don't get a notice within 72 hours of a data breach. Data breach. You're in violation of the regulation and potentially subject to penalties of up to $20 million or 4% of revenue. So was it Marriott that found out that they had a breach that had gone back to, I don't know, was it uh, yes, 10 years? just came out. Yes. Right, that just came out not too long ago? They didn't know they had a breach. That, that's that's right. a big problem when you come think about the whole cyber environment, right? That's right. Because just because you are putting all the protections on your company, you don't necessarily know that some snake has has gotten into your your back office. Well, that's right, and and that kind does of, that does that make that company not liable for those no, 10 because, years? No, because because the the predicate action is the awareness. You have to be okay. aware of the. So that helps. Right, that helps. But the issue that you just presented is, is, is interesting. Well, and I'm going to stop you there for just one more time because just because you as a senior executive may not know doesn't mean that somebody down at a lower level didn't know and was afraid to say something higher up, and which happens all the time. Absolutely. Not. And that becomes a discovery issue, correct? That does become a discovery issue. And I don't know how that would impact the GDPR issues. Right. But that would give rise to potential derivative action exposure, which we talked about in the last right, section. Right, right. And it's funny. You, you, and that, that's all part of corporate culture. And, and, and corporate you know, governance. Correct. And, you know, the scenario you're talking about. And tone it that how I hate that term because it, uh, it's a covering as opposed to really doing what's right and letting know that everybody in the company has a responsibility. Well, that, well, that's... And shouldn't get fired for it. Well, that's right. No, right? absolutely. I'm, absolutely. Shoulda, woulda, coulda is a whole other story. Yeah. No, absolutely. People shouldn't, can't operate out of fear because right. that... But it does happen. Right. Of course it happens. But what really is interesting with what you had mentioned, the scenario you mentioned, is that that sort of scenario is a scenario, I believe, that impacted the courts in um, the Office Depot case, in right. the Winham Hotel case, in the Target case to find that the directors of those and corporations... And Home Depot. You said Home Depot, Home Depot. Or, or Home Depot. Oh, they, no, or, you said Office Depot. They say Office Depot. I meant, I meant Home Depot. I just want to make sure that no, was correct. No, thank you. Home Depot. The, the, to, but actually that and was, the Wyndham Hotels. And the Wyndham Hotels and Target, yes. Yep. And in those cases, you know, there's, there were huge data breaches, but derivative actions were filed against the directors of those corporations. And the, cor- and the, the courts in those three cases found in favor of the directors and officers under that those scenarios, they could not possibly have discovered the data breach. And so they didn't breach their duties as directors by failing to advise their clients sooner. So the directors themselves could not have identified the data breach as opposed to somebody in the corporation? Or well, in, in, not that they could not, that, that it was not discoverable to them. Okay. And therefore, they the fact that they didn't take action was not a basis of liability because they couldn't have possibly foreseen They just didn't know that it happened, right. right. But the is- interesting with- That's the- a big loophole. Well, that is, but I think that's beginning to change. And it's beginning to change. Number one, there's been a case called the Yahoo case. Yahoo, okay. Yahoo, yep. and there was a, a derivative Yahoo. action. Well, <laughs> I don't think they're saying it anymore. <laughs> maybe if you're catching cash on the other end, Yahoo. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Because um, uh, they, they, were the, they were the subject of a securities breach, and they, um, they faced a securities class action, which they paid about $85 million. And then they had a derivative action, which we talked about in the last right. uh, show. And the directors were personally liable for breach of fiduciary duty for failing to discover and take adequate protection against the security breach. 
Maybe just for a quick synopsis for those who may not have heard the first show, you can give a short description of what a derivative suit actually is. A derivative suit is a suit filed by a shareholder against the directors of a corporation seeking the right to sue the directors of the corporation for breach of fiduciary duty. And what distinguishes a, a derivative action from a securities class action, which you all talked, also talked about, Correct. is that a in a derivative action, if there's any recovery you know, or liability found and damages paid, those damages actually go to the corporation to compensate the corporation for its losses due to the director's and officer's breach. Either way, the corporation loses because you still have to pay the lawyers, right? <laughs> um, that's an interesting that's question. That's a technicality. I'm talking to a lawyer, yeah. so hypothetically, hypothetically the, the winners statutes, are the lawyers. <laughs> according to the Delaware statutes, you, you, you can arrange for indemnification defense costs to the directors in a derivative action. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So if I'm on, on the board of directors of a company doing business in, in Europe, California— I mean, if you're doing business here in the United States, chances are something may go through California unless you're only working in your backyard. But most public companies don't do that. And even growing private companies are not doing that anymore, right? How, I mean, what do I actually have to do to comply? I mean, is it just the notification? Or what are the things behind there, behind the notification to, to a customer or, or somebody that I'm taking an email account of, do I need to give? Okay, well, you have to have, make sure your corporation... And again, we're talking hypothetically. I'm not giving you know no, legal advice, correct. but I but I would, if I were a director of a corporation that was faced with the issue of making sure that we were protected against data theft, uh, I would make sure that we have a very competent chief information officer who has a very rigorous program in place to identify any mm -hmm. type of securities um, theft and to have a, an effective reporting system that goes to that chief information officer, then the chief information officer has to be a regular part of senior management and obviously um, be Reporting able to, into the board, able, too. Exactly, reporting into the board. Which is not always the case in companies. You know, the, the, just like in HR, in many cases, the, the HR or the CIO or the CTO will report through a general counsel or a CFO, which in the scope of things actually diminishes the, the strength of that particular position. I agree, absolutely. I would want that chief information officer available to, at every board of director meeting I attend. Every and, single and one. And give a report. I, even if the report is, you know, we, we've, we've done our due diligence, there's been no security breaches. I, I'd want to know that as a director. Every, it's as, sort as, of a, a safe housekeeping measure. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Interesting, interesting. Now, so, again, I'm, I'm not giving legal advice. No, no, no. I I, I, what I, I'd want. I, yeah. But this is an interesting point because the boards of, of banks have to have a risk committee. Yes. And this typically falls under that committee. Yes. Are you, and this is again hypothetically, would you actually look at boards today in the structure? And no director, I'll sort of back up, no director typically wants to add another committee to the board. Yes. As I've talked to a number of board members in, 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 con, in, in, in consultation, and, and they, they just don't want more work. It's right. enough, right? You get paid enough for what you do, not enough for what you should do, as the old adage goes. But do you think it would be, it's important for boards to actually have a technology committee that focuses on this versus a separate risk committee? Because risk can cover a whole lot of things. Yes. And that's a good question. Um, 
And of course, a technology committee could also address R&D and other things that are going on. I I think the problem with data theft, as it's coming out with the Marriott Hotel situation, used just... Or maybe we just have a data theft committee. Uh, Well, I'm not sure I like the idea of the committee as much as I like that CIO (laughs) at the board saying, you you know, we've put these procedures in place. This is what we've discovered thus far. We're monitoring it. Um, you know, it in essence, you have fire drills in, in the CIO's department. Yes. Yeah. And, 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 and I want to, I, as a board member, I would want to almost have you know, regular feedback every month of, of what's happening. Did we pass the fire drill? Yeah. Are we coming too comfortable? Yeah, absolutely. Comfort, comfort is an interesting scenario, I think, when it comes to just about anything in the corporation, but especially when it comes to a risk scenario like this. Oh, absolutely. We get, we fall into habits, right? But what happened yesterday is not going to happen today. Look at, look at 9-11, right? That's interesting. Yes, that's true. We it's do a, get comfortable. A, we get very comfortable. Our antenna is not up where it used to be. And we've gone through the drills. We've had the risk. We become, I think, risk exhausted. That's an interesting term. Um, if not exhausted, certainly immune. Yeah, to, we, yeah we we get yeah. you know a, a thicker yeah. shell. It's yeah. not going to happen. It happened once. It's not going to happen again. Exactly. Lightning doesn't strike twice in the same place. Yes, right? exactly. But it does. Well, I mean, there's just you have to read the pa- every, reading the papers on a regular basis. Or it's there's just, just a different way. There's yeah. a different way in. So, what are some of the other things that we need to be concerned about from a DNO perspective in the whole um, cyber scenario? Because there's a there's a whole myriad of things. That, that may not have actually happened, that potentially aren't even under a DNO policy. Is that correct? Well, that's right. I mean, how I would see the DNO it's policy. It's a new landscape. Absolutely. And um, I would see the DNO policy triggering to cover the directors for mismanage, mis- mismanagement, mismanaging your securities threat. So, there, so, so they, ignorance is no longer excuse today. I I'm coming to that conclusion, especially in view of what happened with Yahoo, and you, comp- you, you combine that with the GDPR mm-hmm. and what's happening in California, that, that security theft has to be such a high level of awareness of a, of a sitting director that, that that director can't sit back and say, no, that's just not in my area of concern. So I was at a, at a meeting probably now about three weeks ago where there was a terrific fellow giving a presentation on technology, predominantly as it dealt with R&D and product innovation from a strategic perspective. But quite frankly, the questions that came out of the audience, which who were sitting directors, both public, some private and and venture-backed companies, that were very ignorant. I was really surprised at the level, the lack of sophistication of the questions that came out. It, predominantly, this was geared towards strategy, but the whole nothing was touched on risk at all. That's interesting. I I'm surprised. I was too. Yeah. I was, I, and this in general would be an audience I would have considered pretty sharp. Uh, yeah, that's that's interesting, and that, and that goes to the same issue of the seminar I attended, where the right. one of the coordinators of the seminar, who's a, a yeah. lawyer who's very very engaged in DNO liability, didn't didn't um, wasn't aware of the issue. Um, just you didn't mention what else I'd consider you know, there, and and I'm an insurance person sure. by nature, and so I, I think in terms of insurance. And obviously, there are a lot of things that aren't covered in the world of insurance, but there are cyber liability policies, and those policies provide you know coverage for liability, but they also provide coverage 
for um, data correction issues, and they they hmm. and some of the and depending upon the policy and the carrier, um, they have resources in place where they can come in when there's a data breach and identify the breach, make repairs, send out proper notifications, provide some sort of remedial support to the uh, customers and patrons. Right. And that policy is becoming more and more indispensable. And a, a policy in general is sort of a a stacking of the bricks, shall we say, correct? Well put. Right? Yes, yes. And if one of those bricks becomes a little loose, does everything sort of like fall down? Hopefully there's overlap. But but hopefully, hopefully there's overlap. Yeah. But um yeah. but you know every every policy does have its specific purpose and, and function. As and, they and say, never assume. You you want to err on the side of caution for correct. sure. Okay. So speaking of caution, one of the the things that I found really fascinating in some of our previous discussions was some of the competition law, unfair competition law in China. Yes. And and China has been an area that so many companies have gone to, and those companies are now coming here to the States to list. So they're looking for U.S.-centric directors to serve on boards of Chinese companies who are listed in the U.S. Yes. And that opens up a whole nother... Bag of worms. Yeah, I was about to say a spaghetti bag, <laughs> but bag of worms is probably better. <laughs> Either one's a good uh, yeah. Worms kind of smell like dirt versus good pasta, well, right? <laughs> yeah, well, there's something dirt involved sometimes when you talk about... But as far as, as, far as I've, I've seen, you know, that, and, and I'm not an expert in the China market, so I'll, I'll admit that, but there's so much that has gone on in the Chinese market that we don't know about. Yes. And the this the suspicion of how trade secrets are, are covered or not covered. Mm-hmm. How do you actually protect yourself if you are a US company or a European centered company and doing business in China so that you are either not caught of unfair practices over there yes. or your trade secrets aren't unveiled? Yeah, that that's an interesting and, and sometimes difficult question. First of all, discovering the problem is is an issue. Well, in some ways, it even goes deeper to that than okay. that because there are companies that are privately held companies in China, and there's companies that are, are state-owned or partially state-owned. And when you get into the sphere of partially state-owned companies, you're dealing in a different rel- animal, a altogether. dangerous environment. Yeah. Uh, because uh, when when you're dealing in that sphere, those companies operate with what could be identified as state secrets. So if you if I'm a company here yeah. in the states and I need to have something manufactured over there. Right. And there's a patent or some particular trade secret around that manufacturing. Predominantly I'm thinking technology oriented. A lot of those manufacturing companies or or facilities in China are partially state owned, if not fully state owned. Right. And sometimes you you don't even know if there's a state ownership issue. How do you find out, or do you not? Sometimes you don't, and and it's really interesting. That, and not till after the violation. Yeah, and and what's scary is that in China, if you commit a wrong, that wrong may fall beyond the borders of civil liability and enter into the realm of criminal liability. Unintentionally or intentionally, and it may be unintentionally. And there's this great story that that I had followed a few years ago involving this man by the name of Peter Humphrey, who is a British national, and his wife, uh, Yu Ying Zhen, I think her name was, who was a um, a Chinese national. And they they married and they developed a, a company that was focused on acquiring 
And the company was centered in China? The company was centered in China. It was a wholly owned, it's a very small owned company. But, there, but the idea of the company was to acquire due diligent information for Chinese companies and, and also non-Chinese companies that had Chinese people on its board. And so due diligent information with regards to acquisition or divestitures or investments or anything, just you know, any kind of due diligence, due dil- any kind of due diligence about the, the people serving on the board. So. Oh, the people serving on the board. Okay. Right, I thought right. I meant the company. Right. I'm, I'm sorry. But no, no. But they're serving the companies by providing this due diligence. Got it. Right. And they operated in the realm of acquiring state secret information. Ooh. Unintentionally. I'm, on the I'm, on the individuals. Unintentionally, right. On the individuals. And ultimately, they both consecutively served criminal prison sentences of two years each, I believe. I don't want to personally <laughs> ever serve a prison sentence or a prison term. <laughs> no. But the last place I probably want to serve it is in China, China yeah, right? Right. Where, where normally, I mean, there, there was... We don't know what happens. No. I have followed it. They've both been released now, so they're both out. But they both served two full years sentence for, for criminal violations of, of acquiring and obtaining state secrets. Wow. And their business is obviously finished. Oh, it's gone. gone. Yeah. Uh, and... And that's not the only case. I mean, you, you have situations of product liability right. in China where the principals of the companies that were responsible for the product liability you know, faced death penalties. Wow. And, and, and other non-Chinese nationals who were involved in allegedly selling state secrets or taking bribes who ended up in prison. Wow. Now, I believe China's going through some transition. So if I am doing contracted to do I'm contracting with a manufacturing facility over in China. They are my vendor. And there is some sort of product liability related to the the product or whatever it is that they're manufacturing that impacts my customers elsewhere. Am I liable as working with them as the customer of or is it just the facility? Cuz I mean cuz that can be a, it sounds like it can be a fine line there. Especially if I'm telling them what to manufacture. My guess is you'd be safe. However, if you were in a situation where you had a manager... My trade secret is what they're manufacturing. You'd say you weren't contracting, but you're manufacturing. You had a manufacturing operation there. Yeah. And you're manufacturing something that was defective and had and impacted the health of others. How la melamine that went into exactly. the baby the me- formula? Baby mel- right. yes. Exactly. Exactly. And, and in fact, the principal of that company was executed, I believe. Really? Yes. Oof. Yeah. Um, but it was a. Um, but if you had a manager res- directly responsible, that manager, you know, would face serious criminal liability. And the problem is, you know, th- there's no insurance in the world that will 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 help that. Right, and bring bring back the health yeah. of a child that may have Th- been impacted, right. or had, had, had medical the... equipment that's being produced and exactly. manufactured over there, and MRIs you... and everything else. Right, right. and you had like, you also had like a, you know, had the melamine problem that was highly publicized. You had a baby crib problem that was highly publicized, where people served criminal sentences for for their um, malfeasance. I know somebody who um, does some manufacturing overseas. And they are, they're not concerned about the, the quality of the manufacturing, shall we say. I would say the quality of the manufacturing, the end product, but the process, which can be dangerous. Because if it's not done properly, the people putting these, these things together die. That's right. I, I got to say it, it's sort of a built-in quality control. 
well, it, I'd say it's a pretty effective built-in quality. Now, and, and they don't own the manufacturing facilities. The manufacturing facilities are vendors of there, but they're very good at due diligence and quality control and making sure that the product that comes back is good. Yes. But they don't have to worry about the health and well-being of, of the employee, which is kind of scary, too. Well, it is scary. And you know, it's not just China. I mean, this goes back and, and not, just, not to... Think of the sweatshops here in the United States years back, right? Yeah. In, in preparing for this conversation, I, I started digging up some old presentations I gave. And I started talk, I, I remember in one presentation, I started my conversation talking about the um, Triangle Shirt Manufacturer fire and the liability of the principals, that factory Correct. back in 1911. And then wow. I, I then in that was even before DNO, which started exactly. you said in about 1930, exactly. right? They were acquitted instantly. But then there was a, another situation, which is more recent, which you may recall, the Bhopal disaster in India with Union oh, Carbide. Oh, my goodness. And in fact, yes. um, the former president of Union Carbide, or the chairman, uh, Warren um, Anderson, I believe his name was. And Union Carbide was uh, based up in Danbury, not too far yeah. from where well, I Warren live. Anderson um, has a, um, a criminal referral against him to this date in India. Wow. So he doesn't travel there. If I, I wouldn't recommend he travel there. So... It, as a director or a principal of a corporation, I mean, the, the liability extends far beyond, potentially, when you're dealing outside right. the U.S., potentially well beyond the civil liability. I mean, there may be some criminal issues involved that, that you need to be aware of, depending upon where you are, how you operate your business, and the like. So before we wrap up on, on this show, and again, we probably could do part you know, <laughs> two. <talk. laughs> As a as a director of a company mm-hmm. who may be may not headquartered in the United States, but doing business in the U.S., in Germany, in the U.K., in China, how do I look at protecting myself in all these different statutes? Because it becomes fairly complex, not just that, you know, one international policy, but, you know, policies in each country, I guess, that, that you're doing business. Is that correct? That's, or coverage? That's correct. And, and not to mention your own personal liability that you want to think of from, not as a director, but what might break that veil as well. I would think that it's probably important that you have the, the right type of, especially if it's a high-level multinational corporation, you have the right insurance broker, that the insurance broker... But even a mid-cap company is doing business, but, you know... Internationally, right. I, so I think the right insurance broker. I, that's my thought because you have people in place in some of these brokerage firms who, who are well aware of what's happening around the world. And, there, and look, there may be issues that aren't insurable, like some of the criminal Correct. issues aren't insurable. But they should at least give advice to what to expect in terms of potential liability and what you can protect against and what you can't protect against. Okay. And clearly the major brokerage firms all have people in place to give that advice. Mm-hmm. Obviously, legal advice is also important, and obviously big firms have offices around the world. I was about to say, but an insurance broker's job is to sell a product. Exactly. And some of those firms, too, that are multinational may have offices like in Germany that are only specialized in government regulations and don't have aren't specialized in the full scale of issues. So as you just pointed out, I mean, for that, for the reason you pointed out and whatnot, buyer beware. You're right. You're probably right. better off with a broker and and some specialty specialism within that broker's office. And that not just a broker that has a specialty in in one area, but depending upon how many different regions that you're dealing in the world and what type of industry or business you're in. Correct. Absolutely. Because a consumer business is different than a. Uh, a B to you know B two B kind of business. Well, that's right. And a manufacturer is different than a service business. 
You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. So there's so much more, again, that we can go over, uh, Perry, and, and I love I – could, I could spend weeks with you just talking about this. And this I'm, is fun. I'm not an insurance geek, I promise. <laughs> but it is I'm interesting, not, isn't it? An insurance, I, I'm not a D&O stalker, uh, no. okay? <laughs> but for those of you who are listening who are interested in learning more about how you can protect yourself and making sure as a director that you are covered, Perry and I are going to be putting together a, a program that is specifically designed for either new directors or new directors and existing directors to learn a little bit more about this and to make sure that you go into any situation with your eyes wide open. And quite frankly, even if you've you know, been a director for a long time, when you leave and it's time for you to step off this particular service, again, to make sure that your eyes and your brain are, are clear on what is covered after the fact and to make sure that you have a good and happy life and the money stays in your pocket. <laughs> so well, with that note, thank you, Perry. Nancy, thank you. It was a pleasure. It's always fun with spending time with you. I, I promise I'm not a, an insurance geek. <laughs> but I do find this a subject fascinating. And that was my original point. It, it, insurance is fascinating. Better to have it than to find yourself um, you know, caught. Up. Absolutely. Amen. Thank you once again. If you have not subscribed to the boardroom's best please do so we are on at least five podcasts actually i know we're in five different networks now on spotify on itunes on fm network and at pippa networks which is our host a little shout out to simon over at pippa we look forward to seeing you again at the next show and if you want information about this dno class or lessons that we'll be doing just come on over to our website, which is www.boardbenchbench.com. We'll have information for you there. Look forward to seeing you soon. And thanks. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you with the support of Resources Global Professionals, the company that delivers intellectual capital on demand to the world's most recognized companies and corporate leaders. RGP, Resources Global, the experts you want to call when you need experience to solve your business problems. www.rgp.com.